Now is that blessed time in our service together where we take and open God's Word and dig in. This morning, we're really taking up uh, the second part of what we began to consider last week in Acts chapter 16, verse 9 to 15. That's the idea of helping, hearing, and heeding. And we're going to look at this in a moment, but let me read this section of Scripture and then pray, and we'll unpack these pieces together. Listen as I read God's Word. Acts 16, verse 9 down through verse 15. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there and urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Lord God, we just um, look to you with a clear and constant sense of dependence. We recognize whenever we open your word, since your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, your word might at times come to us in ways that are unexpected, maybe ways that even defy our our natural ways of thinking and differ from our practical uh, traditions. But God, it is our desire to take every thought captive to Christ It is our earnest desire that we would be faithful to the whole counsel of God's word and not draw wrong conclusions from but merely a portion. I pray, O God, as we consider the things that we do this morning, that you would help us to to glory in something that you reveal of the extent and expression of your power and your grace as you save your people and how that grace, powerfully wrought within them by the Spirit, brings forth a rich and meaningful response. Grant us, O Lord, understanding. Help me to speak clearly all that I would want to say. Grant, Lord, that your word would be made clear to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, to start by way of introduction, as this is part two, I just want us to note this. Remember, he had seen this vision of this man in Macedonia, and that man said, come over and help us. And we notice we learned something crucial from that. Paul did not conclude the man was in need of food, that the man was in need of water, that the man was in need of clothing, that the man was in need of health care and treatment. His immediate conclusion in a real sense, revealing to us what is the highest sense of help 
is a spiritual priority. The spiritual condition of man is the most significant thing. Uh, uh, to, to be the fastest man in the world and the most elegant dancer of all time, but to not enter the kingdom of God by faith is an absolute waste. To live all of your days with, with limbs that do not function or that never even developed, but God pours His love and grace into your heart by His Spirit and brings you into faith union with Christ, what you have is more abundant, more free, more profound, more glorious. God has given you greater gifts and greater blessing in this world than the fella who to the eyes of the world seems to have it all. We saw that highest help, and so they go over. We saw that not only do they see a spiritual priority in all that we do, but, but further, he went, we saw the simplicity of preaching. Everywhere they went, they preached the word. Everywhere they went, they declared the gospel of Christ. Here they meet these ladies outside by, the, by a place of prayer, and they go and they sit down with them and they speak the word of God to them. That is where we stay, the plain speaking of God's word. We neither add to it, nor do we take away from it. Both of those things lead to error. And I want us to be cautious not to fall into those errors. Thirdly, the thing that we saw and that we're going to take up today is the supernatural power of God that produces a saving response. And so well, I'm going to review briefly what we looked at last week, and that is God does a work by His supernatural power and grace in an individual. And when God does that work, then He, by that power, brings a particular response forth from that person. Um, there are theological communities and theological terms and titles people uh, cast around, and they will put certain titles maybe on you or another person from time to time and say, well, these people believe in election. Well, everybody believes in election because the Scripture uses that word. So it's just a matter of defining it and understanding it, but everybody believes in it. But some will say, well, these people believe that if you're elect, God's going to save you no matter what you do. I don't know who has ever actually said that. When God saves you, it actually changes who you are and what you do. When the scripture says, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Does that mean you're the same as you were before? Does that mean you think the same, act the same, do the same? You don't. You're a new creation where previously you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Right? Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. Uh, or Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2. Uh, 2 1 and 2 5. When someone's dead in their trespasses and sin, what do dead people do? 
Yeah, they've already done that. Uh, you know, uh, they, they're, they're unresponsive. And, and we love the power of God's word because what does it say? While you were dead in your trespasses and sin, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. We didn't take the first step. We did not contribute the slightest minuscule amount to our new life. We're born again by the power and grace of God. The scriptures are very clear about this. Now, one of the examples of dead to life that the scriptures give us uh, come out of the gospels and, and speak of Lazarus. You remember as Lazarus is buried and he's in the grave for four days. What does Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. But I ask you this. Can a dead man simply get up and come out of his grave? No. In order for Lazarus to be able to respond to the command of Christ, what had to happen? God, by His miraculous power, had to give him life. And when God gave him life, he happily responded to get out of that tomb and to go to his Savior and life giver. Right? I mean, does anyone for a moment think, here was Lazarus laying in the grave thinking, well, do I or don't I want to live? Will I or will I not agree to this? That's not what happened. When he was given life, he came forth. We say this again, the scriptures will use this uh, of those who, who uh, 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 speaking of the Jews, it says, they have eyes but do not see, ears that do not hear to this very day. But listen, when God when Christ would heal a blind man. You know what, how that man, blind man knew he was healed? He could see. Now, once God, Jesus healed his eyes, how much effort did he have to put into seeing? None. He sees because he's been granted sight. They hear because he has opened their ears. We live because he has given us life. The scriptures say we are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the grace, the faith that saves, that is all a gift of God. So listen, I see with spiritual eyes the truth of God's word because he granted me by the spirit to see that. I hear with a hearing of faith his word because he granted me ears to hear that and a heart to believe it. I believe because he granted me faith. Now we have those examples in the word of God as well as again we end that this section of review by reminding you of the tragic circumstances of the children of Israel. 
who had come out and been brought through that wilderness. They had heard the voice of God, seen the water from the rock, the miracles, the healings by looking at the serpent in the wilderness, manna from heaven. Was there any, could there be any practical doubt in their mind as to the existence of God? They knew God existed. As to the profound power of God, they knew God was powerful, and yet they continued in disbelief, which the Scripture equates with disobedience and unbelief. And we, we, sometimes my mind would say, look, if anybody has an earthly reason to turn of themselves and live for God, how could it not be these people? All that they had experienced, but they did not. They continued to rebel in that wilderness, and all who had come out of Egypt above the age of 20 died in the wilderness. And the reason why is told to us in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, and it says this, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear, which is why when we have unbelieving neighbors, we do not put the confidence in our persuasiveness. When we have unbelieving neighbors, we don't have the confidence in, in, in how eloquently or carefully or accurately we can uh, present it to them, how convincingly we can, nor do we have confidence in them that they'll figure out the truth of what we're saying. You know what our confidence is? That God saves. And so you know what we oft do for our neighbors, for our loved ones who are still apart from the saving grace of God in Christ? We say, and believe it or not, even those who, who don't quite understand the scope of God's initiating power and grace bringing about salvation, still when they pray, they pray as if God can save. Because He can. But they pray, God, save my neighbor. Open our heart. Help them to believe. Turn them. Because God alone does that. Okay, and, and, so, and, and so the scriptures have, have made it very, very clear that this is what must happen. The prisoners must be set free. They don't escape. They are set free. On and on, we have all of these wonderful statements throughout the Old Testament. So note this. When someone is saved, it is by God's power. Lydia had become a worshiper of God in in. Uh, Hebraic phrasing, that means she had become like a Jew in terms of her worship. But listen, being somebody who worshipped the God of the Jews did not bring about salvation. Because there is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, what is that name? Jesus apart from Him. So all of those Pharisees and scribes 
and, and, and uh, Sadducees that rejected Christ as the Messiah while thinking they could still cling to the God of the Old Testament. Are they saved? They're not. Because salvation is wrought by God in Christ. That's why, remember, we remember the promise that God gave even when telling to Mary and Joseph about the child that would be born of her. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not going to open a door so they can save themselves. He will save his people. That's what it says. But listen, there are some who rightly recognize these truths about, about the Scriptures. As it says throughout the Psalms, salvation belongs to our God. And is repeated again in the book of Revelation chapter 5. Salvation belongs to our God and unto the Lamb. Amen? God saves. Amen. But some say, well, if God saves, what is man's part? What is man's responsibility? What is man's duty? And I want us to note this. With regard to regeneration, from death to life, with regard to new birth, with regard to a new creation, man does nothing. Man did no more than, than any of the men did that Jesus healed from being lamed or healed from being bind or raised from the dead. They contributed nothing but need. And he exercised power. But nonetheless... In the saving plan of God, there is a real response and responsibility of man. Now listen, man does not contribute to his own salvation. But man, by God's gracious working, has a part. And let me show that to you from God's Word. So we had seen... God is the one who has to uh, do his work of grace. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. And I wanted to note this for you. It said there, to pay attention, the ESV said. Or, or some translations say to give heed. I need to unpack briefly for you uh, what that, that simple word means. Because it's not simply to pay attention. It carries this sense. It is to occupy one's mind with, to devote oneself to, to cling to. So when it says that the Lord opened her heart, that's not just to pay attention. It helped her overcome a degree of earthly weariness and mental fatigue. No, 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 no. Not that. What he did is he opened her heart to cling to what was being said lay hold of it and to hold on to it and to not let go. This phrase is trans, the very word is translated in another place in First uh, uh, Timothy 3, 8 of those who are addicted to wine. So the Lord opened her heart to be, in a sense, addicted to what was being taught. I get that, don't you? 
You know, I, I, I would love if God's people would have a, a, a greater sense of those swells as, as the drunkard is and the person with addiction, it, it feels like they cannot carry on without another drink, without another fix, that the saints would be such that I, I can't carry on without receiving a little bit more. I, I can't get through the day without this. I need the word of God. I need the input of his grace. I need his power at work within me. But God opened her heart to have that hunger and apprehension and clinging to and attaching herself to the word that was spoken. That's rich, isn't it? That's what God does. And listen, I want you to note this. Um, we, we see what God does. I want us to also see what the spiritual, I mean, what the spirit-enlivened person does. Remember, it says, she attended. She clung to. She attached herself to. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord did the spiritual inward work and it brought a real response from her. She did it. She believed. She clung to. She followed. She did it. Of her own initiative? No. By her own power? No. An independent act of will? No. A renewed will. A renewed heart. A spirit wrought life. And she did. So there is a, what God does. And there is what man does in the converting grace of God. Okay, Not that man is in any way contributing to his salvation. I'm talking about the whole complex notion of conversion. Now, I want us to see this and not miss it. Because by missing men's response, people will misrepresent us. You say salvation is all of God. Yes, it is all of God. Because were it not for the grace of God, men would do nothing. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they're dead, they're lifeless, they're darkened in their understanding. It's a hopeless case. And a new creation united to Christ by faith with the love of God poured into their heart. My goodness, they're going to do something. They're going to do a lot. And the scriptures indicate that, and I don't want us to miss this sense. Because the scriptures here even tell us not only what she did... But even, I, I, I'm going to jump briefly to later in this chapter. Okay, Later in this chapter, it's going to say this in chapter 16. This is once they, they go to the prison, and when they come out of the prison, they go to the prison guard's house, the jailer. And as they have shared the, uh, with him, and he's seen the power of God, listen to what it says in verse 30 of Acts 16. Then he brought them out and said... Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a good question, right? What must I do to be saved? I fear some of our dear men with good theology might say to him, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. God saves and God alone. <laughs> and that's 
true in a sense, but, the, but it's there's nothing you can do apart from God's grace at work within you. But again, I, I always say this, though the scripture gives theology clear, if our theology no longer allows us to answer biblical questions with biblical answers, we got a problem. Because when it says, when he says, what must I do to be saved, what did he answer him? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't say, you can't do anything. He didn't say, you can't believe even if you try. It's true. Apart from grace, he's not going to be able to. But the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, given by the Holy Spirit in the Word, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after by grace they believe, we're happy to tell them, you know why you believed and the person sitting next to you who heard the very same thing didn't? the grace of God that was poured out upon you. God in love poured His Holy Spirit into your heart, as it says in Romans 5. But, but look, we don't front load with the mysteries of the sovereignty of God. We front load with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Again, I want to go with you to Acts chapter 2, because in Acts chapter 2, it says this, now they heard, when they heard this, the gospel being preached, they were cut to their hearts. So the Spirit of God is working conviction of sin in their hearts. And what do they say in Acts chapter 2 verse 37? Brothers, what shall we do? And the answer was not, until God makes you alive, you can do nothing. Until God imparts faith within you by the implanted living word, you cannot. I mean, that's doctrinally true, but that's not the answer to this question. Brothers, what must we do? What's the answer he gives there? Repent and be baptized. Well, you've got to understand this. The gospel is attended with commands. The commands of the gospel, we see them in these two verses combined when we put these together. Now, the reason why he did not tell them in Acts chapter 2, believe, is because having heard the gospel and recognizing the wrong they did in not seeing Christ as the Messiah and participating in his crucifixion, God had brought them to conviction and they were in faith cut to the heart. And they were called then to repent. Now listen, there are some, it, so it says this. In, in this passage in Acts chapter 16, he says, believe. And he did not mention repent and be baptized. And so you know what some people do? They make this verse their pattern. Yeah, we're not going to tell you you need to be baptized. We're not going to tell you to repent. We're going to just believe. Which I appreciate the attempt to be faithful to the Word of God. 
But there's more than one verse in the Bible. There's a lot of verses. And I guess cautiously, maybe we might show up on the day of Pentecost and say, Ah, Peter, careful there. You should have said, just believe. And you even skipped that and said, repent and be baptized. What are you doing? And so what we learn to do is we learn to put all of these pieces together. Uh, uh, Paul and Silas are able to see that God has brought that jailer to repentance. And so they simply call him to the expression of faith, and then he is baptized. Here, uh, Peter is seeing that they already recognize Christ for who he is, and because of that faith God has granted them, they are cut to the heart regarding what they have done, and so he doesn't call them to believe because he sees that is happening. He calls them to repent and be baptized, expressing that, making that known. So, gospel commands, put them together, believe, repent, and be baptized. Now, hold on a second. Can somebody be saved if they're never baptized? Sure. We know very well of the the man on the cross next to Jesus. He had no opportunity. He came in that, that time on the cross. He came by the grace of God to recognize who Jesus was. And even says, when you come into your kingdom... Remember me. And that's astounding to me because here is a man who's on the cross. The fellow he's talking to, Jesus, is being crucified. And yet he has the faith to recognize this isn't the end of him. This is the establishment of his kingdom moving forward. It gets more glorious than now. He's dying. Just think of how different he looked on Jesus than those uh, people who were standing at the foot of the cross and mocking him and scolding him. How different. This is the end of you. Oh, this is but the end of accomplishing the purposes of God in your life, the fulfillment of all righteousness, the bearing of the wrath of God on our behalf, and the establishment of the kingdom and forgiveness in your blood. Oh, my. Um, so, so, uh, so he was not baptized, and yet this day you will be with me in paradise. He was saved. So salvation is not dependent on baptism, but baptism was an ordinary part of the gospel preaching and an ordinary part of the conversion experience of the New Testament believer. What they would do on that day, remember, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and were baptized, yes? But they didn't yet attend new members class. They didn't attend baptism class. And I understand the motivation for those things is an an attempt to weed out false professors of faith. I, I understand that. 
in reality, they will be known by their fruit and they will be weeded out in time anyways. They will go out from us proving that they were not of us. The, God will weed them out in, in time. But, but, um, but it is a different thing for someone to have not been baptized and for someone to refuse to be baptized. Now, if someone says, look, I believe and, and I'm going to follow Jesus and live for him, but I'm not going to be baptized. How does, does that work? Because what does the scripture say? Be baptized. When Jesus sent them out in the Great Commission, what is the simple originating expression of that? Go in to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so if they refuse baptism, are they disciples? See, the challenge comes, people begin to say, wait a second, um, then baptism becomes a work. Repentance becomes a work. Well, by that definition, I guess believing becomes a work too. Yeah, if you want to consider believing, repentance and baptism a work, understand them as a work of grace, a work of God's power in and through us. Because I don't want us to miss this. There is a real response that is, that is, that is wrought uh, by these things. Note, listen to the language that, that the Scripture uses. In Acts 9, verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. Is that telling you what they did? Yes. Can we go back and, and talk about the theology behind it? Because of the grace of God at work within them, because of the gospel preached and the Spirit's work, they turned to Him. But nonetheless, the Scripture is comfortable simply telling us about their response. And we have, to be, we have to be comfortable to even simply say to people, listen, you must turn from your sin, turn from your wickedness, turn from your, your dead works to serve a living God. You must follow Jesus. You must repent. You must believe. We set up on them the responsibilities of the gospel proclamation. And then we pray for God to accomplish it. Listen, not every seed that's planted becomes a tree or becomes a plant. What makes the difference between one and another? Again, we know it is the purposes of God. And so... Uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, God's word says it this way. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with, that's why I say, look, there's nothing wrong with saying, uh, I have decided to follow Jesus, and even singing that song. I, now, just recognize why you have decided. The grace that was at work within you to bring about that decision, that that decision was not independent, but is a, a graced, worked response. But listen, 
nobody who has not been brought by grace to decide to follow Jesus. Nobody who has not committed to Him, repented of their sin, and, and given themselves in faithfulness, they don't know Him. And I, and I, I want to show this why. Now, some would say this. Wait a second. One, if, if you add anything to faith, then you are becoming like a Roman Catholic. You're saying faith plus works. Look, faith plus works does not bring salvation. I, I, I would again say be careful. Do, does your faith save you or does God in Christ save you? So even then we want to be a little bit careful with uh, the instrumental workings of God, because lest we attribute our faith to accomplishing salvation instead of Christ, our Savior. Faith isn't our Savior. Jesus is our Savior, right? And so, um, I, I want us to, to, to get this. But listen, the Scriptures are not uncomfortable with saying this. Though it is clear, we are saved by grace through faith. So faith is instrumental in God's working of our salvation. But listen, that faith, if it is the faith that God gives, it is a living faith, it is a transforming faith, it is a working faith. Okay, so it's not that we're saved by faith plus works, but the only way that you know the evidence that someone truly has faith, you will know them by their fruit. And I'm going to show you this in a, in a number of verses here as, as we begin to work our way in through a couple things. We're going to do it rather, rather quickly, but listen to these verses as I read them. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time of judgment, for judgment to begin, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Now, wait a second. According to our theology, the problem is not, is for those who don't believe the gospel. How dare Peter say, well... I'll tell you how dare Peter say. Uh, Peter was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the truth. And so we've got to understand this. Where there is faith, there is obedience. Where there is unbelief, there is disobedience. Again, I'll, I'll show you uh, another uh, passage here in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, speaking of the second coming of Christ, it speaks of Jesus' coming to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. 
How are they not obeying the gospel? You know what one of the gospel commands is? Believe. So is disobedience also disbelief? Yes, because they're commanded to believe. They're called to turn. says this, um, uh, uh, continuing to read through and letting us see the, the power of God at work. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and following. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, all right, so a person is facing this direction. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How is it that one turns to the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Until the Spirit of the Lord is come, one is bound in darkness and in captivity, enslaved to sin. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a person, they turn by the enabling work of the Spirit of God, causing them both to will and to work for His good power. I'm going to keep reading. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, note this, not are, are now saved, are now going to heaven. That's true, but it says something more. We now, with unveiled faces, are being transformed into the same image. I start out here in the world, of the world, and like the world. The Spirit comes, and I now turn. My a veil is removed, and I now, through the help of the Spirit and the revelation of the Word, perceive the person, glory, and excellencies of Christ, and I am being transformed. That is something that is being done to me. Now listen, when this is being done to me, I am being transformed, the work of God. You know what that actually produces? I am devoted. I am steadfast. I am committed. Why are you saying you're doing it? Well, not I by my own power. I because I am now united to Christ. I because now the Spirit lives within me. I am doing these things because God is at work within me. And I know it's pieces that are too hard. And there's groups that can err too strong on an entire passivity of the Christian life. Let go and let God. Just let go. No, 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 no. Hold fast. Pursue. The scriptures say that, don't they? Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Hold fast to your confession of faith. The scriptures call it. Well, don't. You can't do it. You can't. Yeah, you can. As a new creation in Christ, you can. Not only you can, you will. You are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Verse, chapter 3, the end of verse 18. 
for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now listen, we know Ephesians chapter 2, and I've read that. You were dead, and now you were made alive. By grace, you were saved through faith, not of yourself, so that all the glory goes to God. But it also says this down in verse 10. This is shocking to me that there are actually churches that tell people repentance is a bad word. Don't say repent. Don't tell Christians that they need to change. Don't tell them they have to do good works. What? What does the scripture say? In verse 10, Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So we have become a new creation in Christ Jesus by the working of the Spirit that has wrought faith within us so that now we turn and believe and repent and are baptized. And now we're done, right? No, because He is still at work. We will be earnestly at work. What does it say? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. King James E there says, unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. So are we saved by our works? No, we work because we're saved. Titus 2, and I oft draw people our attention to this passage, and you would not believe the multitude of passages I have ready to bring to bear on this issue that we ain't going to get to today. But I'm quite sure the ones we look at will solidly convince you. And I'm happy to provide the rest for your own perusal. But listen, Titus 2, 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Or bringing salvation for all men. That sense carries this. It's for kings, beggars, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, educated, uneducated, former adulterers, former murderers, former addicts, former homosexuals, all kinds of sinners from all strata of society, God's salvation is poured out upon a multitude of those kinds of people, all people. But here's the distinctive, effectual, powerful working of this grace that appears bringing salvation. And this is what is shocking to me. There's, there are groups running around who says, bring salvation. So you're saved. The end. The very grace that brings salvation, it's not only a saving grace, as we just looked at in the previous uh, section in 2 Corinthians, it's a transforming grace. Let me, let, let me simplify the language. It's a changing grace. <laughs> It's a growing grace. Listen to what it says. Uh, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people. Now, how do I know which people this salvation was specifically brought to and who it never really came to? Maybe you ought to keep reading. What does verse 12 say? Training us. Now, this word training is not a soft word. It it was often associated with a form of teaching where progress or correct compliance might be met with punishment. 
I mean, I know all of you here are far too young, but you've heard stories of the days where students might get called out of class or called up by the teacher who had themselves a pretty sizable ruler, and they would make physical use of that ruler, maybe against the back of the knuckles, maybe against the backside, and, and there would be, and that sort of misbehavior was quashed a little bit. Because you did, the combination of, of the pain and the humiliation kind of held some restraint. It had effect. Listen, the Spirit's working is going to work. And at times, it may be the expression of God's love in chastisement. He's not. Those whom He loves, He chastises. He doesn't just let us go. He doesn't let us go back to our old world, go back to our old ways and carry on. He doesn't. He loves us too much that he who has set his love upon us and brought us to a, a faith union with Christ, he who has begun that work is going to bring it to completion, training us to renounce ungodliness. So if someone is not progressively renouncing ungodliness, what does it mean? They know not the grace of God that brings salvation. Now, please note this. God is merciful, and God is patient. And the progress that each of us make is not at the same pace. So be careful to judge your brother and sister. Uh, instead of judging, encourage them. Come alongside them. Provoke them to love and good works, as iron sharpens iron. But, but note this. Uh, though they may slow down, though they may even stumble for a season, though they may even briefly fall back a bit, they won't remain there because the grace of God that saves trains them to renounce ungodliness. And there's a point at which that ungodliness, the spirit inside them won't let them attach themselves to it with the same level won't let them love that, won't let them live in it because it trains them to renounce it so that as they do it, uh, the, the quickening of the conscience brings guilt, brings, I, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I can't because it trains us to renounce ungodliness and what? And worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What does the salvation, that, the grace that brings salvation do? Trains us to not do the wicked things and also to what? Actually do the godly things. Well, that sounds like work salvation. No, that sounds like salvation at work. Because look what it says um, waiting for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, I want you to notice this. We oft say, and it's true, he gave himself to us for the forgiveness of our sin. Correct? And we are thankful for the forgiveness of our sin. But I want you to note what this particular passage refers to. Yes, Christ died that we might be forgiven our sin. Yes, but that's not all it did. It not only brought about forgiveness from all of our wickedness, it also brought about a life 
that will no longer be latched to lawlessness. It says here, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's, that's doing wicked things. That's the meaning of the word lawless. He redeemed us from doing wicked things. Wait, that sounds like works salvation. No, that talks about just how wonderfully salvation works to, to make us like Christ. And it, it, then it goes on further. To purify for himself. So will we be changed? Yes. A people for his own possession. What does it say? Who are zealous for good works. Oh, don't talk about God. Don't talk about good works. You talk about good works, that, that's, that, that's legalism. You talk about good works, that's, you're, you're going to make people think works contribute to our salvation. The scripture tells us the grace of God that saves us makes us, and actually the word there is a noun, makes us zealots for good works. That, that's now what absolutely characterizes us. I want to. I am just boiling over with a desire to serve God, to do what's pleasing in His sight. Oh, I had so much, so much more that we were going to look at, but we will not today. I will consider... I will consider this week either distributing some of these notes for you to read or maybe taking it up again to expand on it next week. Pray for me that God would give me wisdom. But I want us to see this again. So listen, when God works his work of salvation, when God saves, because indeed God alone saves, the scriptures tell us of what God does and then it tells us of what we must do. It tells us of what of, of God's activity, and then it also reveals to us what by grace is our activity in spiritual response that flows out of the life of God that is in us, okay? So, not one or the other, but both. Let's pray. Lord, we just know that as we as we speak of these things as we unpack a few verses on these issues. It's, it's heartbreaking to see those, so many churches dividing over these issues and fighting over these things and uh, with a commitment to these verses. And this other group with a commitment to these verses. And each group having a, a struggle to understand how either of these things can go together. But Lord, when your word clearly declares all of these things. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. Give us spiritual discernment and understanding. Lord, that we don't, we don't want to err to the left or to the right. We don't want to give any glory and credit to man. Indeed, whatever anyone would see in us, it's nevertheless not I alone, but Christ in us. It is God's grace that is working and we thank you for the confidence that it will work. That indeed, as James says in James 2, um, we will show you our faith by our works. That works are the outflow, indeed the very demonstration of the saving faith that 
God himself's work, not just a mental ascent which the demons themselves have and shudder, but a salvation so worked by your spirit. So God, I thank you for this, and I pray that even as we share the gospel with those around us, that we would pray for them in earnest. Lord, I pray also for any who might be here among us, if there are any who have heard and know these things only with their minds, but in their hearts there is not a, a, a burning passion by the work of your spirit to live for you first and foremost and to turn from sin. Oh God, work that work of saving, transforming, and growing and purifying grace. We ask in Jesus' name.